Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. June is a popular month to get married, so on this episode, Bishop answers some common questions about weddings. Then it's on to Saints Peter and Paul, or the Princes of the Apostles. We'll celebrate their feast day soon. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. We've got a lot to talk about today. Thank you for joining us, Bishop. You're welcome. So June is a popular month for marriage and thought uh, maybe we could just talk about that a little bit. Miriam and I were brainstorming and we came up with a bunch of questions about weddings. So maybe we could just wedding start. questions. Yeah. Good. And I had yeah. a wedding, at, you know, especially I don't get to celebrate a lot of weddings. My calendar doesn't allow it, but I did have celebrate a wedding um, earlier this month, which was a wonderful couple in our diocese. And then I have my uh, youngest niece's wedding coming up on July 5th in Washington, D.C. So I'm okay. experienced. I, I do a few each year. So it's it's great. Yeah. Well, that was going to be one of the questions. How many weddings do you think you have celebrated? More oh, so goodness. when you're a priest. H- hundreds, hundreds. Uh-huh. I don't. Yeah, yeah, more as a priest. Uh-huh. Um I just in my schedule, I I can't. But usually now it's more family, close friends. I don't. Want to do, I do have another wedding this month too. So actually, two. two that is unusual that I have two weddings this June of of people in the diocese. But you know, I've gotten some requests that it's just not possible because of my schedule. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So I guess maybe to start with, what is required for Catholics that want to get married? What what is required of the the sacrament? It's a very fundamental question. Of course, all Catholics are strongly encouraged to, to get married in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, a baptized Catholic, as a matter of fact, has is uh, one of the responsibilities is to have a marriage in the church. It's not even valid if a Catholic gets married outside the church without a dispensation. So, okay. And when I say a marriage within the church, that means a marriage before a priest or deacon. Mm-hmm. You have to go through the marriage preparation. Person has to be free to marry. Mm-hmm. You know they can't be bound by a prior bond of marriage. Okay. Usually, when a couple comes to begin their marriage preparation, one of the first things is to make sure there's no impediments to marriage. You know, and there's variety of impediments. I mean, they can't be too closely related to each other. Mm-hmm. And they can't have a prior bond of marriage. All of those kinds of things. Of course, you can have marriage in the church between two Catholics. Sometimes it's a Catholic marrying a baptized non-Catholic Christian. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can have a Catholic marrying an unbaptized person. Okay. And each of those scenarios has an effect on, on how the wedding is celebrated, too. So you have to know that. So there's there's those three scenarios, two Catholics. Second, a Catholic marrying another Christian who's not Catholic but is baptized. And then a Catholic marrying an unbaptized person, which that last thing, it's not the sacrament of marriage. Then it can only, it's only a sacrament when both the man and the woman are baptized Christians. Okay. You mentioned some formation that's required before getting married, what is required for formation? Yeah. I mean, there's immediate, for example, a couple comes in uh, to begin 
the planning of their wedding and their immediate preparation for marriage. So there's a structured program. They meet with the priest. There's a diocesan component uh, where the different aspects of marriage are discussed. And there's some education about the church's teachings about marriage. But also it gets more personal about the couple's readiness to assume the obligations of marriage. All of that is part of the preparation. But honestly, this preparation needs to begin years before. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why, you know, in our catechesis, especially in high schools, that there be uh, treatment of of the vocation to marriage. The teachings about marriage and what marriage is, especially marriage as a sacrament, should be part of their religious education. So there's that remote preparation for marriage that Mm -hmm. is also very, very important. And also even within the home, learning from their parents about marriage as a vocation and the sanctity of marriage. So then it becomes more personal preparation for marriage when they um, come and see the priest. Usually we ask that they begin that formal preparation six months, at least six months before the wedding, Mm -hmm. so that there's enough time to receive the instruction about the meaning of Christian marriage and the role of husband and wife, so that they really are properly disposed to the duties of this new state of life, and that the celebration of their marriage will be a fruitful one. Mm -hmm. You know, the church and the pastor should be very welcoming to engage couples, and this is an opportunity, I think, for for us to help nourish the faith of this young couple, because faith is so important in this preparation. Catechesis on the church's teaching on marriage and family, on sexuality. If there's a Catholic who's not yet received sacrament of confirmation, which happens sometimes, then they should be prepared to receive the sacrament of confirmation and receive it before the wedding, if at all possible. As I said, you have to make sure there's nothing that stands in the way of it being a valid and licit marriage. Mm-hmm. And I think we need a lot of work on this because of the culture in which we live, where there's a lot of misunderstanding about marriage or lack of knowledge about marriage or erroneous ideas sure. about marriage. I mean, it, it can happen sometimes that uh, an engaged couple may not be ready, and they may, they may discover that in the course of the preparation. There's certain things that that need to be there. They need to have the intention of entering a lifelong permanent union. They can't be entering it with the idea, well, if this doesn't work out, we'll get divorced. Mm-hmm. You know, without the proper intention, it's not a valid marriage. Mm-hmm. They are consenting to a lifelong communion of life and love. They have to have an openness to children. That's required for validity. Mm-hmm. All that is part of of the uh, of the preparation. And a lot of that's mentioned in the vows themselves that they're committing to these things to be open to children and committing. You know, intention of being faithful. Right. Right. Yeah, intention to be faithful. And then they have to have the capacity to fulfill those obligations and to live those promises. Now, when my wife and I did marriage prep, we did like these uh, bubble sheets of, of filling out these questionnaires, and it's not really compatibility so much as much as um, if there were things that we disagreed on, like, okay, now we have to have a conversation about that. And it was a prompt to see like, okay, where 
what are some things that you haven't discussed that you probably should discuss before you're married? Is that something that they still, still do? Okay. Yes, yes. And then, you know, it's important to that is how do you resolve disagreements? Right. You know, how do you face them? How do you resolve them in a constructive way? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So what are some things that are maybe not required for marriage prep, but that you would recommend? Communication, I think, is like you just mentioned. I mean, there's this human side of things that's really important to look at. Um, Communication would be one, how you communicate, how you resolve conflict. You know, one component of it is, too, how do you work on finances? What are your views Mm -hmm. about? Because sometimes we find marriages breaking up because of financial disagreements, right. you know, that should never have to happen, you know, yeah. discuss those things before and how to raise, you're going to raise your children. Things like that need to to be worked out prior. And the spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. I think it's really good to help couples. I mentioned about growing in faith, also growing in the relationship with the Lord with and through each other. So a lot of couples kind of never prayed together. They come and maybe help them to say, why don't you consider praying together and then helping them, sharing with them how to pray together. Sometimes we have mentor couples who help couples in marriage preparation, and that can be very beautiful because they'll share with them how they pray together. Yeah. Because that can really strengthen a marriage as well. It can sometimes be a little more challenging if they don't share the same faith. So when it's a, uh, a marriage between a Catholic and a non-Catholic Christian. There's some differences there that need to be talked about and how you're going to live with those differences. Of course, the Catholic party has to promise to do all in their power to have the children baptized and reared as Catholics. Mm -hmm. Well, how does the non-Catholic Christian feel about that? Are they Mm going to accept that? Or is this going to be a source of friction in the relationship? All that should be worked on prior. Then there's added challenges if a Catholic is marrying a Mm non-Christian. Because, as I said, that's not a sacrament. It's a natural union. It's valid, but it's not a sacrament. So there's not the... And it can be dissolved. But not by the bishop, but only by the Pope. Hmm. There's certain conditions if it didn't, you know, but... But I don't want to get... That's a whole other lesson. But because of that, even the, the, the right is different. The right of marriage, because... The prayers and all are different because normally at a wedding, the prayers are referring to the sacrament. Mm-hmm. They're referring to two baptized Christians mm-hmm. being united in Christ. Right. Well, this is not what happens in the marriage with a non-Christian. So there's a special ceremony, a special ritual that we have for when a Catholic marries a non-Christian. Okay. You mentioned mentor couples. Some of our parishes offer this and some don't. Is that something that you would like to see more of or is there some some complications with that? I I highly recommend it because I think mentor couples are, uh, you know, I think the priests should always be meeting with a couple Mm -hmm. for some sessions. But I also think it's really helpful when there's a, a married couple that, you know, has had the experience of marriage and and can share their experience, can guide the engaged couple and offer them suggestions from their own personal life and experience. Of course, we want mentor couples who know well the church's teaching and can communicate that as well. We need mentor couples who will, uh, who abide by the teachings of the church. Right. 
yeah, I know a lot of wonderful mentor couples mm -hmm. who have really, and, and in, in some ways after the engaged couple is married, I've seen in some situations where the, their relationship continues mm -hmm. as friends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how is it determined if there's going to be a mass or, I know sometimes you'll go to a Catholic wedding in the Catholic church and it's not a, a mass. Right. So how is that determined whether it be a mass or not? Well, definitely if it's two Catholics, it should be a mass. I mean, you know, they should receive the Eucharist, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, there might be a special circumstance or reason why there wouldn't be a mass, but that would be pretty rare okay. if there are two Catholics, okay? I mean, the Eucharist is, you know, unites us with Christ and each other. So really a Catholic mass when there are two Catholics is the prefer preferred form. Mm -hmm. It is not recommended when a Catholic is marrying a non-baptized Christian because the non-baptized Christian would not be able to receive the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. So in that case, there would be a liturgy of the word followed by the rite of marriage, but no liturgy of the Eucharist. In those situations, I often will recommend to the Catholic to attend Mass early that day, mm -hmm. if they could, if they can, so that they receive the Eucharist on their wedding day. And some will do that. Some mm -hmm. will do that. If it's a Catholic marrying a non-Christian, uh, it cannot be in a Mass. You know, it's, um, as I said, that's a separate rite because the prayers are different because it's not a sacramental union. Okay. So why can a deacon officiate a wedding, can celebrate a baptism, can perform a baptism, but can't do confession and the Eucharist, celebrate Mass? Right, because a deacon is not configured to Christ, the high priest and good shepherd when he's ordained. He doesn't receive the sacred power to confect the Eucharist or to absolve sins. So when you look at the sacrament of baptism, I mean, even a layperson can administer baptism. And when you look at a wedding, even in cases of necessity, a layperson can officiate at a wedding. Oh, really? Yeah. Even the Catholic church, but not, I mean, that's mainly in areas where there's a shortage of priests or a lack of priests or deacons. So, um, yeah, there's a difference between ordination, these two grades of holy orders. Same with bishop. I mean, priests and deacons can't ordain. Only the bishop can. Only the bishop has right. the power to ordain. Well, only the priest has the power to consecrate the Eucharist and to forgive sins in mm -hmm. confession. So those powers are not conferred upon a man when he's ordained a deacon. All right. Is there any... Music, I feel like we kind of talked about this last week with the music instrument, but uh, would there be any music that's inappropriate for a wedding? Oh, yes. I mean, music at weddings needs to be sacred music. It needs to be liturgical music. Music is is selected according to the proper liturgical action that's taking place. So bringing in contemporary or pop kind of music or whatever is just not appropriate. The music is to be directed to the praise of God mm -hmm. and to the glory of God. It's not just a celebration of, let's say, the human love mm -hmm. between a couple. It has to be, it has to do with God. It has to do with the praise of God. So 
it's important that we realize that so that a wedding doesn't become, you know, lose its focus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a wedding before the Lord, and that's that's the very heart. So if a couple has a favorite song that really does express love well, but isn't anything about God, save it for the reception, probably. Save it for the reception. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is it okay to have a non-Catholic friend or relative canter at a Catholic wedding? Yes, I think um, that's a good question, Kyle. And I'd have to look at our diocesan policy. Um, but I do know that it is allowed. I don't know if there's any special permission that's required, but I, I, I know it's allowed. Okay. And can Catholic weddings be held outside? No. Um, Catholic weddings, weddings must be within a church, within a Catholic church or chapel. We want the wedding to be celebrated in a sacred place. Mm-hmm. The only situations that I'm aware of where a wedding would be permitted outside would be the case of a Catholic, let's say, marrying a non-Christian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I said, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a natural marriage, not a sacramental marriage. And they would need a dispensation. A Catholic would need a dispensation from an impediment to marry a non-Christian. And that impediment is called in canon law, disparity of cult or disparity of worship. Okay. If they receive that dispensation, then they are allowed to marry the non-Christian, and it could be in a Catholic church, or it could be at another location, maybe even outside. Okay. There might be, for example, if they're marrying a Catholic, marrying a Muslim or a Jewish person, there may be... You know, the other family may not be open to mm-hmm. it being a Catholic church. So there's there's certain special challenges sometimes yeah. with a Catholic marrying a non-Christian. But once the, dis- the dispensation is given for the disparity of cult, allowing the marriage to take place, we don't have a requirement about the locale basically. Okay. And so that would be something to arrange with your priest and he would do whatever is necessary for getting that dispensation. Right. Now the dispensation from disparity of cult has to come from the bishop or the judicial vicar. Right. But you would go through a priest to get that. You went straight to the diocese. Right. They would go through the priest. The priest would ask for us to grant the dispensation. Now, I would still, in that situation, if possible, I think it sh- the wedding should be in a sacred place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still think it should be in the church, or if it's a Jewish person, it could be in a synagogue. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, because of the difference, they try to find a neutral place, right. like outdoors. Mm-hmm. What about unity candles? Are those allowed? No. That kind of is a little custom that that I don't know how it got into the liturgy. It did somewhere along the line, maybe in the 70s. But some years ago, it was said, no, no, we shouldn't be adding these kinds of things to the liturgy. Um, so there are people who like that custom. They, they will, you know, they could do that at the reception if they want. Okay. And then is there anything that to you makes makes a wedding seem especially beautiful or special, something that you really appreciate when you see this at a wedding or something about the 
prayers or anything that you really like? Oh yeah, I mean I've the weddings that I've had recently have all been so beautiful, where there's been beautiful liturgical music, where it's been very reverent. You know, when you have two practicing Catholics, especially who are really devout and really, you know, prayerful young people, they'll usually plan the wedding mass so carefully and mm-hmm. make sure it's all very beautiful. I like the revised um, liturgy of marriage, uh, has a beautiful introduction that the priest gives at the beginning of the mass. But it's so, so beautiful when the, when the liturgy is well planned, where you have good lectors, where everything is, uh, is prayerful, that it's not just something that, oh, we're just getting married in the church because it's what we want, you know, our family have always done or whatever. No, but when they really have, have a, a strong faith and they're really into it, it, it can become a really beautiful, prayerful experience. So I've, yeah, like I said, the weddings that I've had recently or the wedding of my niece that's coming up, I mean, they're very into it. You know, Mm -hmm. like this is the center. Like they're not so caught up in like the reception is like the main thing. No, no, the mass is the main thing. The wedding mass is the main thing. I also, when I was a priest, I always tried to set the tone for that at the wedding rehearsal because everyone's very excited and, you Uh know, kind of boisterous and all that. But I always pray at the wedding rehearsal and kind of talk to the wedding party about the meaning of what's going to take place, the mystery of marriage. Mm -hmm. And it's really incredible, as you see, it's a moment to, and I would often hear confessions Mm -hmm. after the wedding rehearsal, because there sometimes would be some members of the wedding party who were Catholic, but maybe had drifted away from the church. And I always pray that the grace of the Holy Spirit will touch them. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, by offering confession, you know, and then they're able to receive Holy Communion at the wedding mass. That's also really, uh, it's a moment of evangelization, really, yeah. and can be very beautiful. Also, the the nuptial blessing, I, I always think that's a very powerful moment of the wedding liturgy when, you know, the priest extends his hands. It's right after the Our Father, and it's a pretty lengthy prayer that expresses so uh, so well the meaning of, of marriage in the history of salvation. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, thank you for that. There's a video that Pope Francis put out just at the beginning of the month. On, it was actually posted on YouTube on June 1st. And he talks about the marriage as a vocation and a conscious decision for the rest of one's life that requires specific preparation. And I think that's, you know, that's what we're talking about. We need to prepare for this. And not just once you're engaged, but that that preparation even starts, like you were saying, in high school. Yep. And... Uh, but another thing he said in there, which I, th- I think is, is good to remember too, he says, on, the, on this lifelong journey, the husband and wife aren't alone. Jesus accompanies them. So uh, maybe we'll put a link to that in the show notes for this, a nice little message from Pope Francis for anybody that might be preparing for marriage or just somebody that wants to reflect on their marriage as well. And like you said, you know, retreats that are available not only for engaged couples, but also for married couples can be a, a great source of spiritual strength within your relationship. For sure. If anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We're going to talk about Saints Peter and Paul coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And Tuesday, June 29th, is the Solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul. They uh, they get merged together there. They have to share a solemnity. Yeah, and actually we also have other feasts in the year. Uh, we have the Feast of the Chair of Peter, uh-huh. February 22nd. So, And then we have the Feast of the conversion of St. Paul right. on January 25th. But on June 29th, it's not just a feast, it's a solemnity. So this is the highest rank in the liturgical calendar, which is really interesting because when you think about solemnities, it's usually solemnities of our Lord mm-hmm. or solemnities of Our Lady. Mm-hmm. But here, uh, it shows the importance, uh, the veneration that we have for these two great apostles that... Um, were really at the very foundations of the church, Peter and Paul, that this is ranked as a solemnity. And it's a special observance of their martyrdom. You'll notice the priests will wear red, a symbol of blood, uh, and Peter and Paul both martyred in Rome. And their importance at the beginnings of the church and continue to be our protectors and our guides. Of course, the Solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul is a big day in Rome Uh uh, because they're both buried in Rome where they were martyred. Uh, So we can say that the capital of the empire was sanctified by their martyrdom, Hmm. and that's the center of the church is there. So on this day, June 29th, we remember Peter who was martyred. Well, they were both martyred under the Emperor Nero. It's thought that... Uh, was around the year 66 or 67 AD that St. Peter was crucified on the Vatican Hill. It's thought that um, that St. Paul, around the same time, was taken to Rome as a prisoner, and after about a year, he was beheaded. Tradition is that St. Peter was buried on the Vatican Hill. There was a monument that was over the place of his burial called a trophy. A trophy is a funerary monument. Okay. And we found that's been found. That would have been around 120 AD. And it was under that that they found bones that we believe to have been the, the bones of St. Peter. And it was above that trophy that the Emperor Constantine built a church, St. Peter's Basilica, which was then a thousand years, more than a thousand years later, the new Basilica of St. Peter, which is built in the Renaissance, was built over the spot where the old Constantinian Basilica was, which is over the spot of Peter's burial. So St. Paul, on the other hand, was martyred outside the city, and he was on the uh, Ostian Way, via Ostia, which is like the road that leads from Rome to the sea, port city of Ostia, hmm. and um, buried there uh, along the Ostian Way, and they 
Constantine also had a basilica built over the burial place of Paul. And the tradition is that he was beheaded. He was a Roman citizen, so Paul didn't have to be killed in that gruesome way of crucifixion. They, Since he was a Roman citizen, he, he got it an easier way to die, which was by beheading. That doesn't sound very pleasant, no. but it was not as long and painful as a crucifixion would have been. Yeah. Both suffered under the Emperor Nero, who also put many other Christians to death, as we know of one of the infamous, brutal uh, Roman emperors. So they would have happened, you know, around the year 66, 67 AD. And down through the centuries, Christians have made pilgrimages to the tombs of these apostles. Mm -hmm. Why the two of them together? Why wouldn't they either be separate? I, like you mentioned, they already have two separate feasts. Oh, why aren't there like three or four? Like, you know, we have all these martyrs from the early church. What's so special about those two specifically? I think their prominence at the origins of Christianity. I mean, St. Peter was the one that Jesus himself chose to, mm -hmm. to be the, the uh, leader of the apostles, the leader of the church. He even gave him the name Rock Kephas mm -hmm. in Aramaic, Kephas, which is translated into into Greek as Petros, into English as Peter. Mm -hmm. So uh, his name was Simon, Simon Bar-Jonah, the son of John, the son of Jonah. I mean, St. Peter is mentioned throughout the New Testament in the four gospels. He's mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. He's mentioned in the letters of St. Paul. We have two letters of the New Testament, first and second letter of St. Peter. Mm -hmm. So Peter was always the first in the list of the apostles. We read a lot about Peter. He was called by the Lord. He was a fisherman like his brother Andrew. He was had this little fishing business together with the family of Zebedee, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So they had this little fishing operation going at the uh. Sea of Galilee, and it was there that our Lord called them to follow him. We don't know much about Peter's life before Jesus called him. We know he was from Bethsaida which is one of the towns uh, along the Sea of Galilee. He spent a lot of time in Capernaum because his wife was from Capernaum. His mother-in-law lived there. We know about, they've even done excavations under um, a church that's built on the site of, of Peter's mother-in-law's home. So he's a Galilean. He spoke Aramaic. His brother Andrew did as well. James and John were also fishermen. And... Uh, Peter received this call from the Lord. When the Lord called him, we read in Luke's gospel, he told him he would make him a fisher of men. And that's exactly what happened. We see throughout the gospels, Peter's temperament sometimes was a little, mm -hmm. a little challenging. He could be say things without thinking, or he would uh, be a bit, um, I mean, there were weaknesses. He was very human. And I think we can kind of relate to him in that way. He had to be corrected sometimes by our Lord. Mm -hmm. And so he had, you know, the human weaknesses, and yet he was the one the Lord chose to be the chief shepherd of his church. So we see the importance of, of Peter. And, and after the resurrection, after Pentecost, we see Peter's leadership role throughout the Acts of the Apostles. We know that Paul would go to see him in Jerusalem. Paul recognized his authority. The other apostles recognized his authority. 
we believe he went to Antioch and, and there was the first bishop of Antioch and then also went to Rome and became the first bishop of Rome. Paul was also, you know, who's known as Saul, his Roman name before his conversion. He was born in Tarsus, which was a Roman province of Cilicia, in the Roman province of Cilicia. And he had Jewish parents and he was reared, you know, he was in the diaspora. So he's born in Tarsus. So he's, he's in the Gentile world, but he was a Jew he had, and he was a Roman citizen. But he was reared according to the very strict religious party of the Pharisees. And as a matter of fact, he, his parents sent him to Jerusalem when he was a boy and he was immersed in the law. He had as a teacher a very famous rabbi named Gamaliel. And somewhere along the line, he learned how to be a tent maker because mm -hmm. we know that that was his profession. And of course, he was so such a strong Pharisee, so dedicated to the law that he persecuted the Christians. I mean, he was there when, when St. Stephen was stoned. Mm -hmm. He had quite a fiery personality. And then this amazing thing happened on the road to Damascus, and we all know the story of St. Paul's conversion. And after being baptized, he began preaching, etc. He, Jews sought to kill him. He went to Jerusalem to see Peter. Barnabas introduced him to the Christian community, and um, Barnabas brought him to the Christian community at Antioch, and he worked there for a while. Uh, then he went to Jerusalem again. We know of three main missionary journeys, the three missionary journeys. We especially read about them in the Acts of the Apostles, but also in Paul's letters, where he and Barnabas, especially in the first, it was he was together with Barnabas, they brought the gospel to the island of Cyprus and to Asia Minor, different places. So he's preaching to the Gentiles. Um, and then they had to have the Council of Jerusalem because there was the disagreement. So the apostles met Peter and Paul and James and the rest to decide what to do about these Gentile converts. People like James was in, were insisting that they had to be circumcised and they had to follow all the Jewish laws before they became Christian. Paul disagreed. Peter disagreed too. Peter was kind of in the middle somewhat. But, um, but anyhow, they resolved that. And uh, then Paul continued, went on his second missionary journey, traveled throughout Asia Minor, and even crossed over to Europe and went to what is today in Greece, founded churches in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth, spent about two years at Corinth, a very important community, flourishing. We know about his two letters to the Corinthians that he wrote later, went back to Jerusalem again. I mean... He was quite, you know, had to travel. Then he did a third missionary journey, which took him to the great city of Ephesus. And he stayed there with three, for three years. It was very successful until he was thrown out. But um, then visited communities he had established, went back to Jerusalem again. There he was seized and condemned, uh, accused of violating the, the Jewish law, held for prison as a prisoner in Caesarea, appealed to Caesar, was sent by sea to Rome, got shipwrecked and stayed on the island of Malta for a while, arrived in Rome finally, and then was kind of confined there, kind of under house arrest. There's some reports that he actually, at that point, did a missionary trip to Spain. We don't know if that's true or not, historical, but there's some, some thought that maybe he did. Hmm. Went back to Rome, was taken prisoner, and then eventually martyred, beheaded. 
Uh, we have the precious legacy of his 14 letters that we have in the New Testament. We see the greatness of his soul and his importance in the beginnings, decades of the church. Mm -hmm. So they are the two great apostles. They are, we call them the princes of the apostles. It seems appropriate since they were both so important that they're, and both were martyred in Rome that they their feasts be celebrated together, um, the, their martyrdom celebrated together, which is what we do on June 29th. Mm -hmm. And do they represent different styles of ministry? Sometimes I'll hear like the Petrine element of the church or the Pauline element of the church. I know. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. There's a book by Hans Urs von Balthasar where he looks into what they, the different what they call the principles. He'll, they speak of sometimes the Petrine principle or the Pauline principle, okay. the Joannine principle. Some will say, okay, you see the Petrine principle in the Catholic Church, you see the Pauline principle in the Protestant Church, okay. and you see the Joannine principle in the Orthodox Church. <laughs> That's really oversimplified. Sure. And, you know, the Catholic Church has all those principles. Uh -huh. That they're interrelated. You can't separate them. If you think about what's called the Petrine principle, it's basically the pastoral office because it's an office that didn't end with the death of Peter. Mm -hmm. It continues in the church in the person of the popes. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is the unity, the unity of faith, mm -hmm. the unity of all these Christian communities, all these churches throughout the world. They are invisible communion through the visible head of the church, the successor of St. Peter. And this is how Christ established it. He made him the rock. He gave him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the pastoral office, there's the chief shepherd. I mean, Jesus is the chief shepherd, mm -hmm. but his vicar on earth is the successor of St. Peter. But that can't be separated. I mean, you know, Paul recognized Peter's authority. I mean, not that he didn't challenge him sometimes, he did. But he did recognize Peter's authority. But that Pauline dimension or Pauline principle is really important because it gets into the whole idea of mission. Although you say Peter was a missionary too. I sure. mean, he went through, he, he brought the gospel to Samaria. He brought the gospel to Antioch. He, he was a missionary eventually to Rome. But Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and we especially think of his missionary endeavors, but also the adaptation to the different cultures where he brought the gospel. So when they talk about the Pauline dimension of the church, that's what they'll usually refer to. As I mentioned, sometimes they'll speak about the Joannine, which is kind of the, the dimension of love. The dimension of he was the beloved disciple. Saint Joannine John. is St. John. Okay. And of course, that's part of the church. So yeah. I don't think we can separate these three like that, you mm -hmm. know, like the, uh, too much. And the most fundamental principle, this is very beautiful in the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar, is the Marian dimension of the church. Mm -hmm. And he would see that as primary, uh, which is really beautiful in that the church is both Marian and Petrine, and they're not opposed to each other. But the Marian dimension is kind of the faith embodied in Mary, uh -huh. the faith embodied in Mary, the holiness embodied in Mary. The center, of course, always has to be Christ. And Peter's not the center. Christ is the center. That Marian dimension, I think, also brings that out because 
Mary was not only the mother of Christ, uh, she is the exemplar mm-hmm. for the church of holiness and faith. Is it also an image of receptivity that we have to, I've always heard that the, the Marian comes before the Petrine, that we have to receive Christ like into Mary us did. like Mary did at the Annunciation. And then we can go out and evangelize like Peter did. Yes, I agree. Okay. I agree. And I, you know, what image I love is John standing under the cross, receiving Mary, mm. receiving the Marian church, we could say. So there's a certain, uh, at least in the thought of Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, sees this Joannine love as specially linked to, to Mary. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's beautiful too. He exercises the office of love, the reciprocal love between Christ and the church. Mm-hmm. And then the Pauline, the dimension of universalism, going out to all the Gentiles, the whole idea of enculturation, the church's engagement with all the cultures of the world for the sake of the gospel. And the apostolic energy that is needed Mm -hmm. in the church. And we see that that's kind of like the Pauline dimension, I think we could say. And then you look at James, the leader of the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, representing tradition and law, the continuity between the old and the new covenant. Of course, all this happened, you know, at the first council of Jerusalem, you had this disagreement. Uh, You had the more conservative, so to speak, Jewish Christians, and you had the Gentile Christians, and what do you do? And so they had to come to some resolution, mm-hmm. and, and they did. They did re- regard the principle of tradition and law, but also you know, the newness of the new covenant brought by Jesus. So not having to require it, things like circumcision or mm-hmm. following of some of the other Jewish laws. So you have... Peter and Paul there with James. They ironed all this out. Right. You know, so. I noticed you brought a book with you. Is this something you recommend? Well, you know, I love the reflections that Pope Benedict made on St. Paul. Uh Remember the year of St. Paul? Right. Pope Benedict Institute. During that year, he did a series of Wednesday audience talks Mm -hmm. on the teaching of St. Paul, which is really, really, I highly recommend and Pope Benedict also did a few talks, audiences on St. Peter and on each of the other apostles. Okay. So if people want to, I really highly recommend a spiritual reading if you want to. And they're collected in a collection and uh, Ignatius Press has, I think OSV does too, one book on Pope Benedict's audience talks about St. Paul and the other on Pope Benedict's book on the apostles, the other apostles and the early church. And that has several... And I always like to look at those and read those, for example, on the Feast of the Solemn, or on the Solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul, kind of read, uh, read Pope Benedict because his writings are, are so rich. But in one of his audience talks on St. Paul, he just traces St. Paul's life. So if you kind of want to say, okay, how did, you know, try to figure out, okay, where did he travel? How did he, you know, uh-huh. uh, th- that talk that Pope Benedict gave is, is really good you know, a little biography of St. Paul all the way up to his martyrdom. All right. Well, we will put the 
books and the descriptions, maybe links to them in the show notes for this. If you go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, find that so you can pick that up for yourself. But thank you, everybody, for joining us. If you have a question for Bishop, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? How about if I give the special blessing that the church gives on the solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul? Sounds great. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, for he has made you steadfast in St. Peter's saving confession, and through it has set you on the solid rock of the church's faith. Amen. And having instructed you by the tireless preaching of St. Paul, may God teach you constantly by his example to win brothers and sisters for Christ. Amen. So that by the keys of St. Peter and the words of St. Paul, and by the support of their intercession, God may bring us happily to that homeland that Peter attained on a cross and Paul by the blade of a sword. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come down on you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.